Can we talk something else? Can we talk about something else? situation going wrong, a window of opportunity inevitably cracks open. And in that small space of time before it is discovered and slams shut, the lives that may hang in the balance are at the mercy of those intuitive enough to climb through and save them. If there is smoke, then there is fire, they say. But wait, maybe it's just a harmless thing. Maybe it's just somebody having themselves a little cookout, smoking a stogie while smoking some brisket. Let's just hold the phone here a second, see if we can't detect a note of hickory. There's a fine line between optimistic thinking and foolish, cowardly hesitation. I've been there, seen bruises on at-risk kids, noted a flinch when I reached over them to grab a pencil. I've asked too late if everything was all right, hesitated to act because of how uncomfortable the whole thing can be, to assume the worst. But in these situations... Moments where it's conceivable that someone is in trouble and needs an outsider to be brave enough, intuitive enough, to act on their behalf, to climb in through that window of opportunity and save them. There's no time for hesitation. No need for it. Other than to give a prospective perpetrator the benefit of the doubt. And anyone who has fostered a situation that creates any question about the well-being of those that are in their charge or outright possession deserves no benefit. What's the worst that can happen if you're wrong? If you climb through a perceived window of opportunity to help someone, only to find that everything is fine? You'll be commended, for your concern is all. Those that bristle, that take offense to being questioned, probably have something to hide. Either that, or they're just plain aggravated by busybodies, which is understandable, but better to be deemed a busybod than later feel responsible. For a dead bod. Welcome to Dark Topic. I'm your host, Jack Luna. This is episode 014. Where there's smoke. Back in the late 90s. A Connecticut teenager begins breaking into houses. At night, preferably with plenty of people sleeping within, a family to study, to watch over with his night vision goggles and listen to them breathe, thrilling in the feeling of power, knowing he could snatch all of that peace from the home room by room if he chose to. But in these early days of his criminal career, he chooses to only take the money, the jewels. He leaves the little girls intact, allows the fathers to continue battling sleep apnea, the mothers to dream of another man's arms around them, no doubt, and slips in and out of dozens of homes, undetected. 
Today, decades since those adventurous young escapades of his youth, Joshua Komarsajewski could give you every detail, recall each and every coin he stole, and from which house number, on which night, from which family. He's particularly proud of the targets that included an officer of the law, usually untouchable abodes for a criminal, knowing they would be more difficult to ransack, to pervert, with disturbing voyeurism. Joshua would feel a sexual thrill from pushing the limits of his expertise as a cat burglar, a thief in the night. He had always been brilliant, gifted. Josh could have done anything, been anything. A talented artist, many felt he would become an architect. His drawings were so detailed, so deep, full, perfect, that any art school would have thrown an offer at him if shown his personal portfolio of sketches. But from a young age, it was clear that Josh was damaged goods. There was a darkness to him, a brooding sense of danger in his black eyes that maybe had been placed there by abusers, or maybe, even worse, had been unlocked by them. When he'd finally been caught, Komarsajewski faced the possibility of being locked up for the rest of his life. Convicted on 12 counts of burglary, a mere fraction of the actual number of homes he'd invaded, the court showed mercy on the young man with the sad story, a story that included him being adopted at age four, being sexually abused, then sexually abusing others, before being once again abused himself by an older housemate. It was clear the boy was disturbed, malfunctioning, and the hope was that counseling and time behind bars through the bulk of his 20s would right Joshua Komisarjewski somehow. Prosecutors shook their heads at the nine-year sentence. Even the judge smelled smoke and voiced concern of a future fire. He'd warned that Komisarjewski should be watched closely, as he was a, quote, calculated, cold-blooded predator that surely, once set free, would be compelled to reoffend and likely not make the mistake of leaving witnesses the next time around. But this isn't a story about Joshua or the man he'd meet when released from prison in his late 20s. Stephen Hayes. Hayes wasn't as prolific as the young man he'd befriend in the halfway house in the spring of 2007, but he was just as hungry to get high. The two recently released thieves struck up a friendship over their love for cocaine, heroin, and their equally dark sense of humor regarding prospective targets. Though Hayes was almost 20 years Komarsajewski's senior, it was clear from the start who was in charge. Josh had the longer rap sheet, the higher IQ, the steelier resolve, so he naturally grabbed the wheel once the two started rolling together. For Stephen Hayes, that was preferable. Life hadn't gone well calling his own shots, and it wasn't looking to improve, seeing as how now he was a felon, a bum in his late 40s, who just served time for breaking into cars, a pastime he'd near perfected, staking out parking lots near hiking trails and making small scores while Brad and Linda waddled away from their SUV to give their golden a gallop. At this point in Stephen's life, he just wants to get high, and he's willing to go pretty low to achieve that goal. Joshua assures his older acquaintance that all he'll have to do is follow his lead, his instructions, and never question the plan. If he trusted Josh, Stephen Hayes was guaranteed to end up on a hotel bed surrounded by cash, sucking down a crack rock the size of a rich bitch's wedding stone in no time. Hayes breathes a sigh of relief upon hearing this promise and waits for instruction, waits to be put to use. It takes three months 
But on July 22nd of 2007, Kamasajewski finally finds a suitable target. He sees her in a grocery store. She's perfect. Exactly his type. Cute, blonde, athletic. Probably around 12 years old. Her mother appears to be well put together. Possibly for money. Josh follows them home and his suspicions are confirmed when they pull into a fancy, well-manicured neighborhood and into the driveway leading to an equally well-manicured and fancy home. He texts Stephen Hayes and tells him to get ready. Tonight's the night. Rosetta Stone, everybody. You know, for a long time, I've been wanting to go to Japan, but the thing holding me back is that I'm intimidated by the language. And that's why I've been going pretty hard at the Rosetta Stone service. I want to be able to take my girl to Japan, a place that she's always wanted to go, and suddenly just start speaking fluent Japanese at the restaurant. That's my goal. (laughs) Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on a desktop or as an app, and it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. It's been a trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users, 25 languages offered. It's fast language acquisition. Rosetta Stone immerses you in a bunch of ways. Uh, There's an intuitive process where you pick up the language naturally, first with words and phrases, then sentences. They have the speech recognition feature. Built-in true accent gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Uh, It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. It's convenient, and it's an amazing value, especially with this offer here. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Dark Topic listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. All right, everybody, Badlands food. I've been thinking about getting a dog with my little family. We're about to introduce a dog, I believe, at some point here in I have an interest in how we're going to be treating said dog. And it occurs to me, you know, that many dogs suffer from health issues. And with Badlands Food, actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health. She's looking at their food. What she discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that by just adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. It caught my attention. And as I'm about to uh, get a dog, I think that I'm going to use this service, so I thought I'd share it with the audience as well. Uh, I know many of you have dogs. If you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash darktopic and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D.com slash darktopic to check it out. Badlandsfood.com. Dr. William Pettit returns home from golf, not too long after the black eyes of Kamasajewski finished feasting on the particulars of his sprawling residence. He kisses Jennifer, his wife of 20 years, 
They'd met when Bill was making his way up the ranks to becoming one of Cheshire, New England's leading endocrinologists. Jennifer was a pediatric nurse at the time, and the two quickly fell in love. Two decades later, they are living a happy life. Haley, their 17-year-old, has just graduated high school and has been accepted to a prestigious school in Dartmouth. She's upstairs somewhere now, likely reading, maybe even studying. The young lady is a force. After her mother was diagnosed with MS, Haley had quietly gone on an incredible fundraising tear, managing to accrue $50,000 for MS research while her friends were focused on boys and fun. This quiet determination will take their eldest daughter far, they know, and they are so, so proud of her, as they are of 11-year-old Michaela, who is making dinner, bless her. Despite all of their earned privilege, the Pettits live more humbly than many of the middle or lower-class families that drive by and gape at the beautiful homes of Cheshire would expect. There are no butlers or maids. Well, maybe on occasion a maid. It's a big place. But for the most part, the focus for this family is to do good for others, to stay close and connected as a unit, to eat together, constantly communicate, cuddle together on the couch at night and watch movies or read After a late dinner, that's just what Michaela and her mom set off to do. Jennifer is holding her youngest close lately, maybe knowing she's about to lose her oldest, Haley, to the world. She and Michaela read together before falling asleep in the master bedroom while Haley heads off to bed to dream of the future. And Bill dozes off on the couch of the den, having maybe taken on too much sun while golfing with his father all of this beautiful Sunday of late July in 2007. Only three months since his release, Joshua Komarsevjewski receives a text from Stephen Hayes confirming that the Pettits will have just completed their final day together. The text, in response to Komarsevjewski's earlier direction for him to be ready, read as follows. Quote. I'm chomping at the bit to get started. Need a margarita soon. We still on? Kamasajewski, likely a little irritated by being pressed and by Hayes creating a crumb trail, replies, Yes. Hayes is anxious, pushy like a child. He follows up. So? Kamasajewski responds, I'm putting the kid in bed, hold your horses. Hayes, probably on his fourth Budweiser, responds, Dude, the horses want to get loose, lol. Both men have daughters, which should bode well for the Pettit's chances for mercy on this night. Well, it's morning, around 1 a.m. of July 23rd, when Hayes and Komisajewski break into the Pettit basement and enter the home proper through a door leading into the kitchen. They are both armed, Hayes with a gun, Joshua with a Louisville slugger, and they creep around the first floor in search of any bedrooms. They want to collect the family before looking for goods. This isn't a petty robbery. These two cons plan on making this caper well worth the risk. They'll stay all night if they have to. But they aren't leaving. Until they score big. In the den, they discover Dr. Pettit. Bill will forever regret not having retired to bed. Being downstairs left the girls completely exposed. Easy pickings. He's rudely awakened by his own baseball bat. It smashes his head open via swing from dead-eyed Joshua. The young man means business. He doesn't care if he kills the man. He just wants to be sure to incapacitate the biggest threat in the house. And he does, five or six swings later. Bill Pettit is unrecognizable for all of the blood. 
He has two large gashes on the back of his head, one gaping wound above his right eye. He's stammering, and the men whisper for him to shut up. Bill does. They demand to know where the safe is, and Bill shakes his head, mutters that there is no safe. He feels his wrist become zip-tied along with his ankles, before the tall, wiry, younger man with the bat tells the short, stocky, gruff man with the gun that he's going to see what the wife has to say, and to put two bullets in the doctor, should he move. And Josh Komarzajewski heads upstairs to see who else is home. Joshua isn't really here for money, like Stephen Hayes is. He's here for the girl, 11-year-old Michaela. He finds her sleeping with her mother and watches them, listens to them breathe for a bit, before creeping back to the other bedrooms and finding 17-year-old Haley asleep as well. It is not clear how or in what order he wakes the girls, but soon he has them all tied to their individual beds. Michaela has moved from mum back into her own room. Haley proves to be a real problem. She keeps on getting partially loose, almost reaching a phone at some point. Eventually Joshua double ties her, making it near impossible for Haley to get up again, though she tries constantly. Joshua demands that Jennifer tell him where the safe is. Like Bill, she claims that the home contains no safe. Frustrated, he heads back downstairs and orders Stephen to take Bill to the basement. He does, and soon Bill finds himself tied to a support pole with a blanket over his head, dozing in and out of consciousness, sitting on a bed of cushions to keep him off the concrete of the unfinished room. The cushions are comforting. Not just to be sat on, no. Bill couldn't give a shit about his personal comfort at the moment. He's too worried about the girls. The cushions are a relief because they show thoughtfulness, consideration. Maybe the men really will just take what they can and leave them be. Though there's not much to take. The thought kicks Bill into panic and he begins to rub slowly, methodically, at his restraints. The girls are terrified. They each have a pillowcase over their heads. Each have no idea what's happening to the others. And they each have a bad feeling that dad is dead or badly hurt. The men focus on Mother, Jennifer, explaining that the quicker she directs them to the valuables, the quicker all of this will be over. They don't want to hurt anyone. They just want her to be honest, so this can be easy. Jennifer is at a loss. They don't keep stacks of cash, don't own ivory boxes full of jewels. She can't help them. She's sorry. She... The men are irate. Jennifer is tied to her bed and lays helpless as she listens to her home being ransacked, Downstairs, Bill hears the racket of drawers being yanked open, thrown to the floor, and wonders if the girls are being beaten as he had been. Joshua and Stephen are enjoying the hunt. They are trying to scare a confession out of Jennifer, sure, but truly it's like Easter, a treasure hunt. These animals have been caged for years, and now they suddenly can have anything they lay their eyes on. Even the girls, Joshua thinks. Especially the young one. It's not until around 4 a.m. that they tire of rummaging through the Pettit family's possessions. They need to make this worth it. They need to score. Joshua comes across some banking information and is inspired. He orders Hayes to join him in the master bedroom, where the plan is laid out. Jennifer listens from beneath the sack on her head and nods her understanding. She'll do her best. Withdrawing 15000 in one shot might not be possible, though. Joshua assures her that it will be as does Hayes. It will absolutely be possible. For if not, then her girls will die, along with Dr. Moneybags down there. 
Down there, Bill is not making a whole lot of progress on his bindings. The ankles are impossible. His wrists, however, feel like maybe, with enough force. But he has no force, no energy. That's all he can do not to just slump over and sleep. Maybe forever with the ongoing blood loss that will amount to seven pints by the time this is finally through. He dozes, but is snapped back to grim reality every time one of the thugs tosses something to the floor upstairs. He tries not to think about the possibility of the crashes being one of the girls, slammed to the floor for resisting, being beaten for the lack of valuables their father refused to collect over the years. Who the hell keeps jewels and cash in a home safe anyways, he thinks. People looking to get robbed. That's who. Maybe he should have collected a few things over the years. For just such a situation. Bill rubs furiously at the zip ties, but they only seem to dig deeper into his wrists. Another thump from upstairs. Fuck it, he'll cut his own damn hands off if he has to. The frustration of the men upstairs is becoming palpable, and that is not the mood we want. Not the tone. Birds are chirping outside. Did he fall asleep again? The house is so quiet. The irrigation pump kicks on. 5.30. It's 5.30 a.m. Are they gone? Is it over? Oh, God, the girls. Bill is about ready to give up when he hears his wife's voice. Jennifer, she's alive. She sounds measured, calm. That's good. That's good. Talk to them, Jen. Somebody is coming downstairs. He plays dead. It's not hard. Looking alive would be much more difficult. Bill hears his beer fridge open and then the crack of aluminum. There's some heavy breathing, and he knows he's being appraised. The bastard could at least offer a sip. Not that he won his lips anywhere near where his lips have... Don't even think about... Don't even think about that, Bill. Upstairs, Stephen Hayes exits the house. He's off to fill a couple of jugs with gas. It's been decided that they will burn the house down once this is over. Not with the family inside, of course. No need for that. They have their faces covered. Not their own faces. Probably should have done that shit. But the kids and the parents, they can't see them. Dad didn't even need a mask after the way Josh had beat him. Jesus. He really might be dead down there. If that's the case, who knows? Maybe a family barbecue isn't completely out of the question. While Stephen Hayes heads off to get his picture taken at the nearest gas station, Commissar Jeffsky preps Jennifer. She is not to alert anybody at the bank as to what her night's been like. If she does, his partner will know. And his partner, if she couldn't tell by now, will do anything he says. They will be in touch through text, and if he hears of any funny stuff, the girls, along with Dr. Moneybags down there, will die. Jennifer understands. Josh knows she will get this done. He finds he likes Jennifer, respects how stoic she's been through this. Haley, too, what a fighter. He's had to check on her near constantly to be sure she hasn't managed to get loose somehow. The dad, Dr. William Pettit, he's learned his name to be, can die for all Josh cares. Fucking coward. If that were his little girl tied up upstairs, you could be damn sure he wouldn't be taking a nap. What's wrong with some people? Godless. Hayes soon returns, and Kamasajewski briefs he and Jennifer one more time. Then they are on their way, in the Pettit family vehicle, off to catch the bank as it opens. 9 a.m. already. Geez, time flies. Truly flies when you're having fun. 
If that's the case, you better get upstairs before the money gets delivered and this caper comes to a close. Too easy, Joshua thinks, as he heads into the youngest girl's room, eyes black as his heart. Too easy. Almost cheap. Time to increase the value. Jennifer asks the teller to give her $15,000. No. She does not have ID. The men who are holding her family hostage wouldn't allow it, being the masterminds they are. No, please. Jennifer says. Get me a manager and get me the money or my family will die. I'm being watched, so act natural, please. Please. A manager is summoned, and Jennifer convinces her, armed with only the look in her eye, to hand over the money. Jennifer shares that the men are being nice, for now, and if they find out she said anything about them, then they will kill her, her kids. They might have already killed William. She looks as though she might cry. But then she turns, stiffens her resolve, and walks out of the bank, back to the car where Stephen Hayes eyes her with extreme suspicion. Jennifer wouldn't know this, mind you. She's terrified to see his face. Terrified that even the hint of a glance might mean her life. Naturally, the bank calls 911. Special emergency. My name is Mary Lyons. I'm the banking center manager. We have a lady who is in our bank right now who says that her husband and children are being held at their house. The, the people are in a car outside the bank. She is getting $15,000 to bring out to them that if the police are told they will kill the children and the husband. Her name is Jennifer Pettit, P-E-T-I-T. Okay, she still is in the bank? Yes, she is. Okay, she's being held, her, 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 her husband, husband and family is being held? Yes. At their house? Yes, they're tied up. She said they drove her here. Okay. I'm trying to look and see where she's gone. She went outside, but I don't, oh wait, I see her walking now. She is petrified. When Hayes returns, he does not receive a hero's welcome as expected from Josh. It has occurred to him that his partner has taken very little risk thus far, and he hasn't said anything, but he might. Of course, knowing Josh, he'll just say the idea was his, and that he's the one who took it to the doctor, which is true, but Stephen can't help but feel he's being used as a fall guy to some degree here. A patsy. A backup plan. The look on Commissar Jeski's face, though, as they enter the kitchen... Jennifer, head down and holding a sack of cash, dismisses Stephen's petty concerns. It's clear that there's a larger concern, and when Josh whispers what he's done, of how there's now DNA on this scene, semen, more specifically, as a result of Joshua having sodomized the girl, among other things too shitty to mention. He has pictures. Show you later, Stevie. Hayes realizes that they'll have to clean house. He is not in the mood for this. Christ, he just wants to get high. Hayes ponders this fucked up situation looking blankly at a front window when a car pulls out. There's a man inside, and he's looking at the house. It's a cop, plain clothes, sure, but he knows a cop when he sees one. And just like that, Stephen Hayes fucking loses it. Joshua cheers the older man on as he beats Jennifer to the ground, makes some remark of how Josh can't have all the fun, then simultaneously begins raping and strangling the woman. Downstairs, Bill yells out, and Josh runs to the stairs to tell him not to worry. This will all be over in a few minutes. Bill can hear his wife screaming, and then just a bunch of thumping. 
It's enough to make it possible for him to finally rip his restraints apart. He's a little shocked by this. Shocked that he's free, except for the bindings around his ankles. Bill makes the difficult decision to go for help and crawls up out through the cellar door into a rainy morning. He drags himself, crawls, gets up and hops across his lawn like a tortured soul in some hellish potato sack race. In the trees, he thinks he sees men. Cops. Can't be. It's a wonder he can even think still, let alone hop across his way too fucking large yard to the neighbors, a neighbor who is approaching him now, as Bill collapses. The neighbor is yelling at him, asking him what he wants, and Bill realizes that this man he's known for 20 years does not recognize him, for all the blood on his face. He digs deep and manages to spit out a few words. Words like, Me, Bill, Bill, help. The girls... Then he's being shoved to his stomach by one of the men from the woods, and now he has a gun in his face. Why? Why won't they go to the house, to the girls? Jennifer. He smells the smoke. A car comes flying down the driveway and smashes into the unmarked police vehicle that makes its way down the street where it slams into a barrier of cruisers. Commissar Jeski and Hayes are promptly arrested. They reek of gasoline. From inside the house, screams are heard by the dozen or so finally approaching officers. Michaela is being burned alive, still strapped to her bed. Haley gets up and attempts to save her sister when her own binds melt free. She staggers to her door through smoke and flames, the accelerant on her clothes erupting as she does so. Still, she manages to open her door, take a few steps into the hallway, before finally dying. And they'll say there was nothing anyone could have done. But that's not true. And they'll say there's no way anyone could have stopped it. But that's not true either. Because where there's smoke, there's a window. Five, maybe ten minutes it stays open. But it was there. It's always there. Until a burst of flames sucks it shut. <laughs> 